If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open it up and turn with me to the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 27. Matthew, chapter 27, is the text of Scripture that we will give our attention to in this morning's message and continue in on our series working through the entire book called the Gospel of Matthew. Before I read the passage of Scripture, I would like you to put yourself in Jesus' shoes. I want you to imagine that everything that I read is happening to you, and as you put yourself in the shoes of Jesus, I would like you to try and think which aspect of what Jesus is facing in this story might be the more difficult thing for you to deal with. What would be the hardest thing for you to endure that Jesus endures in Matthew 27? Let's start in verse 24. Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 24. Put yourself as seeing this story through the eyes of Jesus. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, He took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him. And took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, They offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. 
Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. If you had to go through everything that I just read, what would stick out as maybe being the most difficult part? Would it be the injustice of the courts? I began reading with Pilate, one of the leading government officials of the Roman Empire, lying, falsely accusing the courts. They're unjust. Have you ever experienced injustice and feel like, ah, I've been so wronged by leaders, officials? Or would it be the physical pain, the scourging, being whipped until your back is raw, the crown of thorns pressed into your head, or the crown of thorns pressed into your head and then a reed beating that head? And surely pushing those crown of thorns deeper. Or to be just that short little phrase. To crucify him. And then they crucified him. Being hung on a cross. Being exhausted physically and having to hold yourself up for every breath. As hard as... And as real as all of those physical pains and sufferings must have been, I would like to suggest that the gospel writer Matthew is not highlighting them nearly as much as he is the shame of the whole event. In fact, the big idea of this week's sermon is that as we read through this section of Matthew 27, the emphasis in the story is not on the physical pain. Rather, it is on the humiliation. So your one sentence big idea is that Jesus did not just physically die for our sins. He did. He was mocked. He was shamed. He was humiliated. He was treated like a fool. Because this would be the wisdom and the power of God. Jesus did not just die for our sins, physically dying. He was mocked, he was shamed, he was treated like a fool. He played the fool because this was the wisdom and the power of God. Let's make sure that all of us are seeing quite clearly that Jesus didn't just physically die for our sins and physically suffer. He was mocked, he was shamed, he was humiliated. He became a fool. He was made fun of, he was teased. Turn back to chapter 26. You'll see that this didn't actually start here in chapter 27. Back in Matthew 26, verses 67 to 68, the mocking and the teasing begins in verse 67. Then they spit in his face. They struck him and some slapped him and they said, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? And then in Verse 26 of chapter 27, the passage of scripture I just read to you, I mentioned the scourging of Jesus. 
It's a detail that every single gospel writer includes regarding the sufferings of Christ right before he dies on the cross. Have you ever wondered why Jesus was beaten? You know, today it's not really popular to talk about spanking children. You might get mixed ideas even in this crowd of Christians. Well, the Bible says spanking, using the rod for a child is the way to discipline them and raise them. And that's like a contentious, debated issue. You know what's even more contentious? The Bible talks about beating, using the rod, spanking adults. I'm not making this up. Read your Bible. The book of Deuteronomy says that a wayward person should be beaten. And the book of Proverbs is filled repeatedly with foolish people being treated like a fool by being beaten. Now, there's a lot that we could talk about regarding, whoa, this is the reason I don't like the Bible or not. But hang with me here. The God of the Bible is showing us that he is taking on that role and position of fulfilling the covenant curses of Deuteronomy and becoming the Proverbs fool by being beaten even though he was the wisest man to ever walk the earth. Before you start judging the Bible, realize this is the God that we're dealing with. He was scourged in order to fulfill those covenant curses. He was delivered to be crucified. And when you read that verse, look down at verse 26 again. Notice how short, how brief, how little detail is given to the scourging and the crucifying. The physical pain is not emphasized or dramatized or passion of the Christ. Let's really narrow in on the whippings so that way you feel this emotional gut response to the physical pain. It's just a quick sentence. He was scourged, And then they led him to be crucified. Clearly not the emphasis of Matthew 27 is to highlight the details of the physical pain. It could be because people in Matthew's day, when they were reading this, they did not need you to describe scourging and crucifixion. They saw it all the time in the public as they walked around. It was something that you would not want to elaborate on. It was like, we got it. We know what crucifixion is. But I think the main reason is because Matthew's emphasis, as he's retelling this story, is to highlight the shame of the story, the mocking, the foolishness of it all. Look at verse 28. They stripped him naked, and then they put a scarlet robe on him. When you think about Jesus being stripped naked, and more than likely the evidence would suggest that when he hung on the cross as he was dying, he would have been naked as well, again, to humiliate him. But even before that, there's this stripping of his clothes, putting on this robe, and then taking it off, on and off, being humiliated in front of everyone. And it makes me think, can you think of another story in the Bible where nakedness and shame are connected? Can you think of any place in the Bible where somebody, because of their sin, feels just this utter shame that they would like to cover themselves and not be exposed for who they truly are? I think in many ways, Jesus' nakedness is experiencing the shame that all of us feel. Identifying with the feeling of, what if 
everybody saw what was really being hidden. And not just under the clothes, but what that symbolically says regarding all of the things that we hide that we don't want anybody else to know. Jesus experiences the emotional and the spiritual pain of sin and the fall. Verse 29, they twisted together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, they put a reed in his hand, and they knelt before him, and then the text repeats itself. They mocked him, they said, Hail, King of the Jews. They then spit on him again. Now he's been spit on at least twice in these two chapters. They took the reed, they struck him on the head, and then it says they had mocked him, stripping him of his robe, putting on his own clothes, and then leading him away to be crucified. Who's doing all this, by the way? When you read it in this section, it's Gentile, non-Jewish, Roman soldiers. That's what verse 27 is saying. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered together a whole battalion before him. If it's all of those people, it'd be hundreds, potentially. Hundreds of Roman soldiers mocking, laughing, teasing. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 37. This isn't just in a closed-off room. Okay, he got teased and made fun of by some Roman soldiers. Public humiliation. Everybody's going to see this. Everybody's going to be out and seeing the nakedness and the shame and the ridicule of Jesus. Look at verse 37. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Verse 39, and then everybody walking by, what are they doing? Passing by. This is like being on Interstate I-90. I-90 and 290, you're at some sort of public kind of highway where you're seeing people pass by. This is a giant billboard so that everybody passing by says this is what happens when you don't play along with Roman rules. That's why I mean that they probably did not need details about crucifixions because everybody's seen billboard after billboard of like, don't mess with them. And sure enough, Jesus is out in public. Everybody who passes by derides him, wags their heads, says, you could destroy the temple, you said, and rebuild it in three days. Why don't you save yourself if you're the son of God? Come down from the cross, just laughing at him, making fun of him. So Gentiles, non-Jewish soldiers, now just anybody, public, out there for all to see the shame and humiliation that Jesus is experiencing. But then there's more Jewish mocking. Verse 41, the chief priests with the scribes and elders, they also mocked him and said, he saved other people. Why can't he save himself? If he's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross. Then we'll believe in him. Sarcasm is dripping from the page. He trusts in God, so let God deliver him now if he desires him. He said that he was the son of God. And then if matters weren't worse, Gentile soldiers, public ridicule, his own people, the Jewish friends, families, cousins, he came to his own and his own decided, we don't want anything to do with you. His own tribe, his people. But our, our text ends with one final dagger of shame, verse 44. And then the criminals, the robbers who were crucified with him, also got in on the act and reviled him in 
the same way. Is it clear to you the big idea? Jesus Christ did not just physically die for our sins. He was publicly mocked, shamed, and humiliated and treated as if he was a fool. Even though he was the incarnate wisdom of God, the wisest man who ever walked the earth. The only person in the story that gets Jesus right is the woman. Go women. And I mean that not as like a silly joke. I mean that as it's so often in the Bible's way of telling the story that they're going to take the world's customs and flip them upside down. Women who had no testimony that was right could not be received in court. It's the woman who calls Jesus the righteous one or the innocent one you might have in your translation. The only person in all of Matthew's gospel that calls him righteous is the woman that's trying to convince her husband, Pilate, don't do this. So when I asked you at the beginning of this message, now which of these things would be the most difficult for you? And I just want to go out on a hunch and suggest that perhaps if, for some of you, you're like, I don't know, I really feel like the physical pain would be really bad. Why would the shame and the humiliation, like, not that big of a deal? If you're even tempted to think that way, I think that part of that reason is that you are immersed in a mindset that is individualistic. And Jesus and his culture and the readers of Matthew's gospel are not individualistic. They are communal. And the honor-shame value system of this culture is permeating everything that they do, which is why I think he is highlighting the shame. If you die physically, that's one thing. But if you die without any dignity to your name, that is a hell that no Jewish man would ever want to go through. The worst thing that could happen to you in an honor-shame culture is humiliation, to lose your reputation. This is because when you are in a communal, family-oriented culture and not a, well, I don't care what my mom and dad did. I'm going to be me and I'm going to do me and that's me. When you realize that it's mom and dad's reputation gets passed down onto me whether I like it or not. That kind of culture, this is almost everything for someone. Your name, that's your legacy. It's what makes your life have significance is that reputation. Some of you are going to get this because you come from honor-shame cultures. It's one of the blessings of being in a multicultural, diverse congregation in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. I've had several conversations with some of you that come from Eastern or Middle Eastern cultures. You get this when you read the Bible. Westerners, those of you that have only grown up in the individualism of America, listen up to our brothers and sisters who are from these cultures. Help them teach you to read the Bible. Ask them questions. Get to know them and realize this is huge. And this is why I think it's highlighted in the gospel here in Matthew 27. So it's a horrible curse, going to your grave, knowing that your name and your family and everything that you stood for is disgraced. So why did this happen? Well, before I give you the ultimate answer, which I already did, the wisdom and the power of God is being put on display, I want you to just realize that we get a little hint as to why he was mocked in this way and so repeatedly 
by the sort of claims that Jesus made that he's now being teased for. Did you notice that throughout the whole passage, nobody's quoting Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? Or his ethics about love your neighbor as yourself? Nobody's wagging their heads and be like, that's that guy who said, love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> like, no one's doing that. What are they mocking him for? His claims. Hail, King of the Jews. Oh, he thinks that he can destroy the temple in three days, rebuild it? Does he somehow think that he is the new temple? That his body represents the whole cosmic understanding of entry and access to the throne room of God, the presence of God? Who does he think he is? That's foolish. That's the thing that they're making fun of him for. It's the very thing that you and I are going to make fun of him for even if we do it in our civilized and polite ways. It's the very thing that we aren't comfortable with. It's the reason why the people outside of the church think that this whole thing that we're doing right now called church and worship is a bunch of waste of time because of the claims, not the teachings. Jesus didn't die on a cross. He wasn't crucified because he said, love your neighbor as yourself. He was, he was a good moral teacher. He died because he claimed he was the king, the Messiah, the son of God. And they use those words and laugh at him. Make sure you rightly understand Jesus and why he died. So that's why he's being mocked. But that's just the surface level human explanation to the reason. The big idea of today's sermon is that Jesus did not just die on a cross physically. He died with utter humiliation and shame because this is the plan and the wisdom of God. Paul, in his later writings, is going to say, God will never be mocked. God is not mocked. When you read Matthew 27, you might be scratching your head thinking, I don't know, if Jesus is the Son of God and he's God incarnate, well then, looks like God's getting mocked. So who's right? Did Jesus, the Son of God, get mocked? Or did he not get mocked? Should we take Paul or Matthew? And yes, Jesus is being mocked. But we must realize, like the psalmist says in Psalm 2, God is in the heavens doing the laughing. He will get the last laugh. He always does. Even when the nations plot to hurt the Lord's anointed, they plot in vain and the Lord scoffs and laughs at the foolishness of humanity. And so if we read through this story and look at every point of the story, the mockery of the mockers is being turned against them. Every point, it's turned inside out. Injustice then becomes the pathway to justice and restoration and redemption. The mockery of the mockers becomes the road to truth and life and salvation. How about that? How about that for the wisdom of God? Start first with the Roman government, Pilate, all those soldiers. During the trial, Pilate ceded his authority to Jewish people. Did you catch that in the story? He says, well, what do you want me to do with them? He doesn't make the decision. He's not in control. It is the Jewish people that make the decision to crucify Jesus, not him. So when the soldiers are putting Jesus to death and mocking him as the king of the Jews, they're actually acting on the order, not of their governor, but of the Jews. Pilate has this title of governor, but he's not doing much governing at all. The Jewish people 
and their king, Jesus, who we've said all through these sermons in Matthew 26 and 27, he is the one completely in control every step of the way. So when the soldiers say, oh, hail the king of the Jews, they don't even realize it, but they're telling the truth on their lips. Jesus is not just the Jewish king, he is their king, and they are carrying out his orders. Yeah, that's good, right? Oh, there's more. There's layers. The soldiers do not grasp all kinds of things that they're doing. The scarlet robe they put on him is the same color robe for the temple curtains, similar to what the high priest would wear when he enters in and out of the temple. By robing Jesus in this scarlet robe, they're dressing him up just like the high priest that he is, who will go into the temple and take away the sins of all of God's people. Or we could be thinking about the Day of Atonement when the high priest would have to take off his outer garments, put on a new set of clothes, then take them back off again. A stripping, then a putting on, and then a restripping. All of this back and forth of the clothes that the Roman soldiers are doing is like Jesus being sent off in the Day of Atonement to sprinkle blood to cover the sins of his people. And then at the cross, the Roman soldiers and the Jews can't help themselves but continue to fulfill the purposes of God. They unwittingly are fulfilling prophecy left and right and all over the place. And you know me, we would love to do a sermon on each of these things. But here they are in quick succession. Pay attention. Wake up. Now's the time to listen. When they gave Jesus the gall and that wine to quench his thirst, they're fulfilling Psalm 69, 21. When they cast lots for Jesus' clothes, they're fulfilling Psalm 22, 16. When Jesus is said to be crucified amongst the transgressors, they are fulfilling Isaiah 53, verse 12. And it's not just that they're fulfilling prophecies. This is not an apologetic point. Ah, see, the Bible's true. It is that, but I don't think that's what Matthew is doing here. The irony is deeper. When they fulfill these prophecies, it is undermining all that they're doing with their mockering and their laughing and their their conjoling and jeering. When the soldiers prove that Jesus is who he said he is, the passerbyers, all of them are fulfilling the prophetic words of the scriptures. Look at verse 43 again. It says that he trusts Sorry, um, yes, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires, for he said that I am the son of God. Verse 43 is an allusion to Psalm 22, verse 8. Or when the chief priests and scribes show that Jesus is the king of Israel, he is fulfilling the role as David's son, and so on and so forth. All through this text of scripture, whether it's the wagging of their heads or it's the reproach of Jesus being called the one that said that he would destroy the temple in three days, raise it again, are all references that you can find, let's say, in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 16, the prophet says that the temple and the land will be a desolation, an object of perpetual hissing that everyone who passes by will shake their heads in astonishment. And so we see passerbyers mocking, shaking their heads, wagging them, saying, oh, he could destroy the temple. The very words that Jeremiah used to talk about those that would see a destructive temple, but that was promised to be rebuilt. And so in many ways, the irony and wisdom of God is being put on display one point after another. They're mocking Jesus and his prophecies as they fulfill the prophecies 
of God. They mock his claims about being a temple, not realizing that he is the temple. They say that he is unable to save himself, not knowing that he's actually saving the whole world. I hope and pray that as you read through this passage, you will not only see that Jesus is being humiliated, but that all of that is to fulfill the wise plans of God for him to become the suffering servant who takes our place and bears our shame and becomes the fool that you and I deserve to be. The fool in the place that gets beat and even experiences the judgment of death. Jesus is the ruined temple, the temple that opens up the doorway to heaven for us to say our prayers and to have access to God. And so this is the repeated refrain, I think, throughout Matthew 27. And as you might guess, there's various other details and ways that this is being fulfilled. So the point, though, is Jesus, shamed, because this is the wise plan of God. Lastly, Jesus was shamed and humiliated as he died on a cross, not just to display the wisdom of God, but as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the cross of Christ, it is folly and foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who believe, it is the wisdom and it is the power of God. So I want to just conclude our time together just meditating on this reality. How is this power? How can this power be unleashed in your heart, in our church, and in our community, in our world? Well, we need to realize that as Jesus is hanging on a tree, similar to the nakedness of the story in Genesis chapter 3 in Adam, we see that Jesus is the new Adam. And this tree has become a means of death rather than the source of life. And one of the key connection points between Adam and Jesus is not just his tree and his cross, but the words that we hear when Jesus is asked by those, fair, um, those chief priests and scribes. Look at verse 41. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. And if he desires, for, if he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God, what is the question that is being asked or stated in this? It's a question of tempting Jesus in a kind of question format that should sound eerily familiar to another story in the Gospel of Matthew, the temptation that Adam experienced, the temptation that Christ experienced in the wilderness. Did God really say that you were the Son of God? Can you see that in their mocking and teasing? If he's your father, if, if this is the, the God that you're trusting in, is, is this what he does? Why are you going to keep believing in him? Where, where is he? Your father promised rescue, but doesn't look like he's coming. He sent you to this excruciating, shameful death. He sent you to a place filled with mobsters and injustice. What kind of father is that? Can you trust a father that would lead you to places like that? And as they say, you're trusting him. Why are you trusting him? Doesn't that sound like the serpent in Genesis chapter 3? Did God really say? And doesn't it sound like the serpent in the wilderness? Did God really say that if you're the son of God, 
what, what's going on here? And in the same way, that's the question that you and I are being asked, and it's at the root and the core of all of the struggles that we have in this fallen world. Is God really worth your trust? And do you realize that by Jesus trusting him and not coming down off of that cross, he is unleashing the power of God, that in weakness there is power, in staying there is strength. The temptation is for Jesus to come down and he is saying nothing and he is trusting. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we're actually told explicitly that he was entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And they mocked him for that. They mocked him for being a person who's on this earth experiencing the worst possible shame, the worst possible physical pain, the spiritual abandonment of the Father as we will see in the weeks to come. And he stays. He continues to trust. Even when all those circumstances around him are saying anything but that, and he's being teased for it. Why would you keep trusting in this God now? Friends, is is it connecting to your mind, your heart, your life? How many of you are struggling on a regular basis with the thought that if these are my circumstances, then I don't think this God is good? Answer is all of us. This is the human condition. This is the problem we face on a regular basis. We think that if God was good, this is what life would be like. The reality is that more often than not in a fallen world, he takes us through the suffering because on the other end of that death is a resurrection of new life. We don't like that plan. We're more like the mockers. We're more like the scoffers that want to say to ourselves, why are we trusting in this God in the first place? And when you understand that this is the wisdom and the power of God, and that through your weakness, this is how his grace will be sufficient to you, it unleashes the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel for your daily life. And this is where we want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and entrust ourselves to the God who judges justly. So when you and I suffer, we're tempted to doubt the Father's words and believe the lies of the serpent. We're tempted to doubt his goodness and say, who would put a person on a cross like this? Shouldn't we just climb down as quickly as we can and show how powerful God is? No, that's the exact opposite. The power of God is on display by him staying, by him being silent. This is foolishness to our world, but this is the wisdom of God. Believe it, brothers and sisters. Learn the subversive, upside-down nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where your weakness, your inadequacies, your confessing sin, your exposing your nakedness is not going to be the worst thing. In fact, it could be the best thing that happens if you allow God and his wise purposes to redeem and restore and bring new life out of it. This requires repentance. A whole new mindset for how to view everything in your life. This is what it means to be a Christian. is to realize that the world is telling us the exact opposite message. And therefore, if I'm going to be a faithful Christian, I must repent and believe that the wisdom of this world is foolishness. But the wisdom of God, even though it's seen as foolishness, is power. It is power for your everyday, daily life. Let me give you one specific example. If you too are dealing with injustice like Jesus was dealing with, 
or humiliation or being falsely accused or you're dealing with somebody teasing you, making fun of you, you're dealing with some sort of name-calling or being misrepresented, how often do you get upset by that and think, well, I need to stand up for myself in a way that's going to make this right? I wonder in how many of those situations you're choosing the wisdom of this world and you're fighting sin with sin and your response is no better than what we're seeing in Matthew 27 from these scoffers and soldiers. But what if God's spirit changed and transformed your mind, your heart, your desires, and you realize that by being silent, that by being patient, by not saying vengeance is mine, I will repay, but I will entrust myself to the one who judges justly. Vengeance is his, he will repay. I wonder how that may not transform the disagreements in your marriage, the struggles you're having at work, the issues that we're having within the church. I wonder. It seems as if throughout not only the Gospel of Matthew, but throughout Scripture, we're being called to embrace shame because this will be our glory. In the same way that Jesus embraced shame and nakedness and exposure of all these things that he didn't do in order to be glorified. So will you trust him? Will you repent? Will you have your mind and heart opened to the possibility that maybe God's ways are higher and wiser and better than your ways? That your plans and dreams, your goals and ambitions, your desires are being negatively affected by the curse of the fall. And in God's wise plan, there is a way through the suffering and a way through the hardships that you're dealing with. And that is the power and the wisdom of God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to come now in the name of your Son, Jesus, and ask that your Spirit will, in fact, open up to us a new world of possibilities, a new world of living out this life and being able to handle and deal with reviling and injustice and being misrepresented. Father, we want to pray that your Spirit will change our hearts that we would be in awe of your wisdom, that we would have the power of our weakness and your strength unleashed in our moment-to-moment, day-by-day lives. We thank you for the grace that is sufficient, and we want to ask now that you would help us, by your grace, to trust you to believe even for the next hour and the next day of our lives. Help us. We are in desperate need of your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.